Hey, welcome. Welcome to Livingstone Calvary Chapel. Glad that you guys are here with us. Those who are joining online, um, we're so grateful that you're with us too. Glad that you're here. <coughs> As I was worshiping with you guys um, and uh, just thinking about what we do when we gather together, uh, I was just in awe again. I want to share just, you know, I, we used to be like we would think, you know, what if the president of the United States called you and be like, I'll be like, decline. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, my point is, is we used to think about, you know, someone special calling us, someone famous calling us. You know, like, I, I, I think Elon Musk is a weird dude. I, I think he's, I, but he's, he's amazing to me. I've watched some documentaries, and if, like, if he, like, pulled up on my phone, I'd be like, wow, it's like Elon Musk. He wants to talk to me. And um, you know, you think of people in our in our world that you might feel that way if you were to get your phone and it was to show up there it'd be like is this real and you know when we gather together on on times like this not only on sunday mornings but when we spend our time in the morning in god's word when we pray when we come together as a church we have something greater than any of that we have the god who's created the heavens and the earth and everything that is within them picking up the phone so to speak and going hey i want to talk to you today that's an amazing thing when you think about it when we come to his word we come to him in prayer not only does he hear us but he wants to talk to us um and that's a that's a overwhelming and super encouraging and hopeful thought for me this morning and um I would just pray that we all would answer the phone today, so to speak. You know, here I am, Lord. Here we are. Talk to us. Your servant hears. So with that being said, um, we have a few announcements for you. Um, I want to bring it to your attention. We have, there's a, Focus on the Family put out a video series uh, several years ago. It's still relevant. It's really good. It's called The Truth Project. It's a 12-week video series study through um, a Christian um, worldview, um, a biblical worldview, um, and, and, and um, looking at yourself, looking at what the Bible says, and how to look at the things that are going on in the world. Um, we have uh, Amanda uh, Sharp and Robin McCarthy. They've taught through this for other groups before, and they've offered to do it again for some of the ladies in our church, those who want to do so. That's what the flyer is. Amanda's phone number is at the bottom. She's here today. Amanda, raise your hand. Robin was here first service, um, but they have uh <coughs> a sign-up sheet that they're carrying around. If you ladies wish to be a part of this 12-week series to really grow your faith, um, hear from the Lord, uh, maybe realign your perspective with wha uh, uh, what your worldview with what the Bible has to say, uh, talk to Amanda. You can either call her or you can talk to her after service, but it's going to be Wednesday morning from 10 to 12 or Thursday night from 6.30 to 8.30 space is limited. They're doing it in their homes. Thank you for the hospitality and the willingness to do this. It's much appreciated. So reach out to them and you'll be blessed. There are several announcements in your bulletin. I don't want to announce them all. Please read through them. I do want to speak to a couple. First of all, next Sunday, right? Where are we? Outside, 930. So if you show here up at 830, you can help set up and eat donuts. So, but we're not going to start till 930. And if you show up at 10.30, you're going to miss most of service. So please show up at 9.30. Bring, we will have chairs if you don't have one, hard 
metal folding chairs. They're not that comfortable. So bring your comfortable camp lawn chairs, whatever. We'll have the um, sunshade set up there. There'll be a plenty of room, plenty of shade, time of worship, and spending time together in the Word um, uh, together outside. And we'll do that all summer long, and we will continue with our Friday or Saturday evening service as well at 530. Um, and then as far as the announcements, take note with some changes to the youth group through the summer. Uh, junior high and high school kids meet together, not two separate ages. It's because they do a lot more events through the summer and um, activities together. And so Paul's got some fun things planned for our youth. Uh, six to eight, they meet at the Bridge Youth Center. VBS, again, mark your calendars for that. We'll need volunteers. Um, two new announcements for men and then one announcement for our families. So men's summer devotionals are going to be starting. They're going to be Saturday mornings at 830 in Duck Park at the playground. And we're encouraging all men to come, but men, if you have children, we're encouraging you to bring your children, give your wife a break on Saturday mornings, let your kids play on the playground as we study God's word as a time of devotion, hang out in fellowship, and eat donuts together. There will be donuts. So um, come and enjoy that. Uh, it's just really a good time for us men to not only, you know, something our wives are better at, women are better at, that we really stink at is relationships, guys. You know, men, men have relationships because we do stuff together. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's how God's made us. We go work on together. We go hunting or do stuff together like that. But we can, we can gather together around God's word too, and we should. So let's gather together in the park next Saturday. Please bring your kids. If you don't have kids, um, you, we still want you to come. It's not a only for dads and kids kinds of thing. But 830 Duck Park, um, and uh, it'll be awesome. Uh, and then men's breakfast the following Saturday, June 11th at 830. Uh, and, of course, we do a, a end-of-the-year camping trip with uh, – end-of-the-summer camping trip with the youth at the Bridge Youth Center. Uh, Journey Quest hosts us. Um, it's uh, camping, hiking, um, river rafting. It's a whole week full of fun for the kids where we share the gospel message, talk to them about Jesus, get involved in their lives um, on a 24-7 period of time for five days. Um, they will be in the parking lot gathering together to wash cars for a fundraiser. And we've can made that for your convenience where you can come and eat breakfast, be taught God's word, have a time of fellowship, worship the Lord while your car is getting washed for a small donation. So men, please note that. And then lastly, 4th of July weekend. It's not the weekend. It's actually, 4th of July is not on the weekend this year. But July 4th through the 6th, we're going to have our family camp. We do that every year. We try to get together as a church and go camping together. Um, it's a lot of fun. This year, we, we made it a little closer. It's going to be at Lake Isabel. It's only about an hour away. And we rented out the whole campground there behind the lake. So we have 40 spots total, 10 spots that will house RVs or trailers. The rest is for tent camping, tent camping spaces, fire pits, water. The, the creek runs right through the campground. It's $15 per family. And there's a sign-up sheet because we don't we want to know who's coming so that we have limited spaces. Um, and so please note down on there if you're coming with a tent or a camper. And then last but not least, you know, we have some amazing, talented people in this fellowship. And, you know, lots of times um, I hear people say, well, why didn't I know that about so-and-so? I could have used that service. Or if they knew how to do that, I could have I could have hired them and not someone else. And so that's part of just knowing each other. As a, as a church family, get to know one another and, and um, use 
your gifts and talents in each other's lives. And with that preface, I want to point out to you that we have a couple of authors in our church um, who have written books, and some are currently writing a book that I know about, um, but um, Robin Saget is one of the authors in our church, and uh, she's written a book. It's a big book. No. <laughs> It's, it's more of a, it's a devotion type thing, and um, it, it, it's called Eyes to Ear, Eyes to See, Ears to Hear, A Journey Out of Fear into the Light. And I've um, read through some of it. It's a book where you can read one page, move on to five other pages, read something there, and, and, and still be ministered to. Uh, it's a book of hope and faith, of God's truth, his love from Robin's personal perspective and her interaction with the Lord over her journey um, to coming to know the Lord, to having her eyes open and her ears open to spiritual truth. The reason why I'm mentioning this to you is I recommend the book. So, um, and, and um, we don't normally like put this kind of stuff out there like that, but the reason why we're doing it is because Robin is having a, who knows where Taylor West is? You guys know Nancy at Taylor West? She's an awesome addition to our community down on Main Street, 5th and Main. Robin is going to be having a book signing down there. And um, uh, God has put it on her heart with these books to let the proceeds to be donated to um, a Christian school that we have a vision for. And we don't have it yet, but we're moving forward in some things with hopefully a new building and a new school and, and lots of things here in the near future. And God's put it on her heart for the donations and the proceeds. Actual word is royalties, I think is um, to be noted, donated to that future school. And so we're wanting you to support her so that you can help support our, our Christian school. So um, if you want to copy the book, Robin, raise your hand. So that's Robin. So, and um, yeah, yeah. I've never written a book. I have a hard time reading books. So, but uh, it's very cool. And so uh, there you go. Thanks, Robin. Mark chapter 8, verse 13, guys. I, I want to preface this by reminding you that the gospel of Mark, you know, if, if we use our modern day psychological terms, Mark, if you look at his writing, of course it was the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has a, a, a clear agenda through the gospel of Mark. But you might read it and go, that, that's Mark had ADD. I mean, he doesn't stay on one topic for very long, and he just moves from one point to one point to one point. And, and you can, we can get lost in just the rapid movement that Mark travels through the events in the life of Christ. And we've seen that through this, this time. And in these last verses of this chapter, man, there's a lot going on here. And, and it's very easy to read through them and to not see the bigger picture. And so as we read through these things that are being accounted to us, I want us to be able to, to step back. Look at it all, chase the thread that's going through each account that Mark's giving to us here in order to see the big picture, the overall message as God speaks to us this morning. So keep that in mind as we look at these things. There's messages and wisdom and application in each one of the different accounts that Mark gives us, but these accounts together reveal a whole message for us as well that I hope we glean from this morning. So let's pray, and as we pray, as we do uh, from week to week, praying for the other churches in our community, um, let's pray for the first Christian church. And um, I know they have a new pastor. I called this week to try to get a hold of him and talk to him. I didn't get a phone call back. I don't even know his name. Um, and so I wasn't able to, to get that for you, but God knows. So um, let's pray. Father, 
We do want to hear from you, and we know that you want to speak to us today um, by your Spirit, through your Word. And I pray, Lord, that we would see um, the brevity of that this morning. We would take it seriously, and we would prepare ourselves. And Lord, we've been doing that as we've come to you and worshipped you and come before your throne to receive what you have for us. And Lord, I pray you would continue to prepare our heart and our mind so that we may hear. Lord, thank you for the other churches in our community. And I am encouraged to be reminded and to know that there are other people outside of our own church who live here with us that love you, that want your will for our town, for our county, for our state, for this world that we live in. They want your kingdom to come here on earth that is in heaven. So I pray, Lord, you bless the First Christian Church today as they study your word. I know their services start at 10 o'clock today and pray for their pastor, Lord, to bring the truth of your word through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. I'm grateful that they have a new leader there, Lord, who is faithful to serve you and to serve the church. Lord, um, we thank you for them. Thank you for everybody here, Lord, those who are joining us online. Father, we love you, and we give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 13. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Is it because we have no bread? Speaking to, of course, the things that Jesus, the warning that Jesus had just spoke to him. And uh, we see here the the carnal mind of the earthly mind uh, set of of the disciples. And, um, of course, Jesus is constantly calling them to be spiritually minded, to look at the things that he says, the things that he does through the lens of, uh, of, of what's going on in, in regards to the kingdom of God spiritually and spiritual truth. And so Jesus, it says in verse 17, being aware of it, how they reasoned with carnal thoughts, said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hard? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? I just want to point out for those who don't come on a regular basis here, that might be the title to Robin's book in that same sense, but that was in no means intended to happen today, you know. Um, and, and hopefully that will give you a little bit of understanding, perhaps to Robin's own journey and the journey that we're all on together in this relationship with the Lord. And clearly we see it here with the disciples. Jesus is going, come on, guys. Having eyes, do you not? Do you not yet see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Do you not remember? And of course, they, they, ha- they had forgotten to some level at that moment, in that moment, as they weren't considering what Jesus was saying in light of the bigger picture. He says, when I broke, do you not remember when I broke the five loaves and the five thou- for the 5,000? And how many baskets full of fragments did, did you take up? And, and, and I do. I love it that Jesus just didn't ask that question rhetorically and continued on. He waited for them to respond. Guys, how many did you not have left after? And they're like, 12. You know, I kind of see it that way because they're worried about not having a breath bread. And Jesus is going, guys, I could I can take a I can take I can make something for nothing. You give me a crumb of bread. I can feed us all. It's clearly not about the bread. And, and he and he 
he says it again. He says, how about when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 and, and how many bag fragments did, did I have you take up? And they said 12. And then again, when I broke the seven loaves of bread for the 4,000, but how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? Again, waiting for them to respond. And they said seven. And so he said to them, how is it, how is it you do not understand? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. How is it that they and we sometimes just do not understand, blinded spiritually, you know, to see or to hear the things of God? And last week we read through the first 13 verses of this chapter, and as we close, we discussed why, first of all, why Jesus would not give the Pharisees another sign at this time. And um, instead of giving them another sign like they had asked for, we're told here in verse 13 as we continue on with the account that Jesus left them. He got in a boat, went back across the Sea of Galilee to Israel. And he, he did this because he knew that the Pharisees were hard-hearted. They, they were spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, and had no desire to leave that condition. They were only looking for reasons to condemn him, to remain in a state of unbelief. And so on this boat ride is, is where the, uh, this, this, this next aspect of the account goes on. It's when Jesus took the opportunity to warn his disciples about these religious leaders, explaining more to them, not only his actions, but, but really the intent behind why they are doing what they're doing. And he says in verse 15, right, beware, speaking about the religious leaders and Herod, he kind of throws Herod in there. He's a He's a historical character that they've had to deal with up to this point as well. But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod, Jesus said. And you might know this, but another word for leaven that is more commonly used in the, 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 our time is the word yeast. And both of these, these um, the leaven and the yeast is used or was used to put in bread dough in order to make bread expand. So it would become light and fluffy and delicious to eat, you know. And... Um, Back in Jesus' day, they didn't have dried yeast that you would just activate with a certain temperature of water and put it in your bread to allow it to rise. They would, they would recover or save back a little lump of the bread that had already been activated with the yeast as it went through and, and made the bread rise and become puffy and, and, and delicious. They would keep that back and that, that, that lump of leaven, that bread dough that had the yeast living in it would be put in new dough and it would grow and expand and infect, if you will, the rest of the new bread dough. And, and that process would continue over and over again. And this is what Jesus was calling their attention to because um, the Jews were very familiar, and Scripture teaches this all the time, that leaven is used in Scripture as a spiritual metaphor. And it's, it's connected in, a, in that sense for sin, pride, and corruption simply because of the nature of leaven, in that it is used to describe how something that can be very small in, in quantity can thoroughly spread through something by its influence. And we see that relationship then to sin or corruption. And um, apparently the disciples knew about leaven. They weren't unfamiliar with it. Uh, they knew that it was, it was used in, in, in bread, in the process of making bread, but they were not spiritually minded, Right? And, and so when Jesus began to talk and warn his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, they reasoned somehow, some way that, oh, Jesus must be talking about bread here. And, and they reasoned that because in spite of having the seven baskets of leftover bread, 
after Jesus had just fed the 4,000, these guys, got to love them, they left all seven baskets of, of bread there on the shore, and for this journey amongst them, they managed to take maybe one loaf of bread. They weren't thinking it out for their journey home. So they, 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 they according to verse 16, wrongly concluded that Jesus, he must be referring to the fact that, there's, that there's not, they're not taking enough bread. And, um, and we might think that's a, that's a hard jump to make. What do you, how can you guys miss it, that kind of a thing? But when you're, when you're earthly-minded and you're, you're missing spiritual things, or when you're, you, who, you, we've all misunderstood somebody or had someone misunderstand us completely, where you, well, they key in on one thing because they don't understand, and they go, they've got to be talking about this. And you're like, I'm not talking about that. And then you have to reiterate and explain yourself. And, and, and yet we see this, this lack of communication here, not because Jesus wasn't being a good communicator, but because they didn't have the eyes to see or the ears to hear. They weren't remembering. They weren't thinking. They weren't looking through things with the spiritual lens. And so it wasn't that they hadn't taken enough bread. It, wasn't, it was that Jesus was teaching them about the Pharisees and the evil and the corruption that was coming th- from them. But yet in doing so, we know they missed the spiritual application. Initially, they did. They missed the truth that Jesus was making known to them and did so because they were more focused on the temporal things of this life than they were about the things of the kingdom of God. And that's something for us to be aware of. As, as Christians, we're being in the world, not of the world. We're, being, we're to be kingdom-minded, heavenly-minded, not earthly-minded. And, and, and we have a sense of what goes on around us, but we must look at everything through the lens of eternity and through the lens of how God views things in order for us to see and to live in a way that God wants us to see and live in the world that we're called to live in. But it was, the, you know, it was this concern for the things of this life that ultimately blind and deafened their spiritual senses. And that can happen to us. We can be spiritually blind and, and, and or even, even, even not completely blind, but even we don't see very well or, or we don't even hear very well because we have our attentions to other things. And this is why Jesus ultimately questions their reasoning right here in verses 18 through 21. And asks, said, guys, having eyes to see and ears to hear, and, and even having been eyewitnesses to the, the, these two miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, he's saying, how are you still without understanding? They were still without understanding. And the bottom line is at this moment, the disciples were unable to understand the tr- spiritual truth because they were ultimately, what were they worried about? They were worried about what they were going to eat. You know, it, it may seem ridiculous to us since they had just witnessed not only the power of Jesus, but the compassion of Jesus who had provided for so many twice now in a miraculous way. But I think that, sadly, we, we, I don't, we are. We are just like these disciples. We so often quickly forget about the things that God has done for us. Even the things that we've seen with our own eyes. We can become blind and deaf to the spiritual things of God because we're more concerned or distracted, at least, or focused upon the things of this life, the temporal things of this life, rather than the things of the kingdom of God. I love one of the things that God gives us as a tool for that. He tells us to make memorials. You know, I see, you see that all throughout the Old Testament. The children of Israel come into the promised land. God says, stop, make a memorial, a memorial of remembrance of the things that I've done for you, lest you forget, lest the generation to come forget. We have to be intentional in these kinds of things, but we also have to change our mindset. In Matthew's gospel, this is when Jesus spoke to his disciples 
and said, you know, why do you worry about what you eat? Why do you worry about what you wear? He said, God cares for the sparrows and the, and the grasses and the flowers. And, and I'm paraphrasing here. He says, he says, seek first the kingdom of God, right? And his righteousness. And then all these other things that you are so focused on and worried about. He said, that's going to be provided for you, taken care of for you. Anyway, does God, God knows that we need these things. And it's, it's not that you just totally ignore these things. You just keep the priority right. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And, and have eyes to see these things. And we know here that as we read this account that Jesus had spoken a really important warning to the Pharisees. And his, about the Pharisees to his disciples. And they had initially not understood because they were dull in their senses. And even though Mark's account, it never tells us that the disciples ever did come to the place of understanding. Mark just kind of leaves us hanging here. But in the Gospel of Matthew, we're told that after Jesus rebuked them, that they came to an understanding and that he was ultimately warning them to be specifically to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees, the things that the Pharisees have been teaching you. And Jesus had likened the teaching of the Pharisees to this, this illustration of leaven because it, it was a spiritual, it's a, it's a spiritual picture of, of sin and corruption. Jesus was saying their teaching is sinful. It's corrupt. And, and, and this spiritual picture uh, being an example of sin is something that the Hebrew people were aware of for centuries now, for generations now. All the way back, if you remember, in Exodus chapter 12 is when it first had been given or instruct, an instruction to the, to the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people, to remove all leaven was what God had said from their house during the Feast of Passover. It had some, had some roots in remembrance of what God had done in, the, in delivering them out of Egypt, and I don't have time to go over all that, but as it progressed on, it was a picture of purifying during this holy time, this, this season of Passover, to remove the leaven from your house, to not eat bread that had leaven in it, only eat unleavened bread. And it was a, a picture of purifying as you you removed all of it, of removing the sin from your life and sanctifying yourself and set up, setting yourself apart unto God. But more importantly, it was a foreshadow, always the Passover and what took place. It was a picture of Jesus who is the fulfillment of the Passover. We know, as he has said to us here up to this point, that he's the bread of life. He's the unleavened bread of life who is without sin and is without corruption. And in fact, we as Christians, right, in one sense, we carry on with this imagery through remembrance as we also eat or use bread without leaven in it for our communion as a remembrance of his body that was broken for us, a body without sin, a life without sin, a life without corruption. In fact, it's this, this, this time of remembrance that, that um, we are, is, we're commanded to do on a regular basis when we gather together. And we see the importance of that as we connect it to what we're reading here. So leaven is a picture of sin because, because right, a little bit of it will quickly spread throughout the whole. And that's true in our lives. And that's something to realize because when we make a decision to choose sin, which we all do, well, often we... we, we, we um, justify it or we reason within ourselves that it's not going to be bad or it's okay or whatever conclusion we come to because we often say oh it's just a little bit 
It's just a little thing. And, and, and the truth is, is that little bit, that little thing has the power and inevitably will bring forth a whole corrupting. It'll, 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 it'll permeate throughout our whole life. And this is why Paul, speaking to the, the early church, the Corinthian church, about their sinful behaviors and their sinful attitudes. Let me give you a little backdrop on this. So in 1 Corinthians 5, we know that there was a member of the church who had taken his father's wife, his stepmom, and was having carnal relations with her and the church was like oh we're so loving we've allowed for this man to stay in the church with us who was in blatant rebellion to god and openly sinning and 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 like kind of bragging about it there was no repentance saying it was okay and the church was like no problem look how loving we are coming on in and and it was this and what paul writes he's saying man your boasting is not good this is not a good thing to be boasting in and that's not that we go about sin sniffing I mean because there's always sin to be found it's different than than we're all have sin and none of us are if that if not sinning would be the qualification for being in church then there would be nobody here it was not that it was <laughs> right it was it was the attitude of hey i'm sinning and it's okay and you guys just need to accept it and like oh we accept your brother and he's destroying lives he's wrecking his life and the life of people around him and nobody's sharing with him that what you're doing is wrong and you need to repent and rather they're just glorying in it that they're so loving it's a lot that goes on today look at we're so loving we're just tolerant god's not tolerant he's intolerant what he is is gracious and we're called to be gracious and and in a world that calls us as christians and condemns us as christians for being intolerant good be intolerant towards sin especially the sin in your own life but be gracious at the same time and they were getting it confused. And so he says, your boasting is not God. Good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He says, this kind of behavior is affecting the whole. It's corrupting the whole. And such is the case with all sin, because even a little sin can, can and will corrupt the whole of our life. Therefore, we must always deal with our sin in a radical way. And every time you see it in Scripture, whether it's in the life of a person or in the life of the church, the early church, God deals with it in a radical way. Look back through the Old Testament. I mean, the ground will open up and swallow people. Ananias and Sapphira, the early church, man, drop dead. You know, and there's certain reasons for that at that time. But we see here that in our own life that God wants us to deal with sin in a radical way. Cut it out. Get rid of it. Run away from it. Don't dabble with it. And that's a good encouragement again this morning. Now, the sin of the Pharisees, as we look at the specifics of this that Jesus was warning his disciples to be aware of, it's accounted for us in, in Matthew's gospel, and it's, it's literally, as by Scripture telling us, the leaven of the, of, the, the, of the Pharisees was pride. I mean, there's many sins out there, but pride, the sin of pride, and pride is what was promoted in their teachings. They didn't go around saying, be prideful, I command you to be prideful, but they were telling, they were putting all these extra rules and regulations upon people and saying, if you do the rules and you keep the regulations, even the ones in addition to what God has given that we've set forth, hundreds of them, they're like, you're going to be holy. And it's like, yeah, look at what I can do. I'm holy. You know, that kind of pride, that, that boasting in self, really that pride brings forth and leads to self-righteousness. And that's what their teaching was breeding, self-righteousness. And, and ultimately, a dependency on self rather than a dependency on God. 
And the sin of pride ultimately is Jesus is warning his disciples about this, and he's, he's warning them about it because it kept the Pharisees from seeing not only who Jesus is truly, but seeing their own personal need for him. And the sin of pride blinded them, blinded them to the obvious truth who Jesus is in spite of all the supernatural and miraculous things they saw Jesus do. And so Jesus is dealing with that same spiritual blindness on a different level, but the same kind of spiritual blindness with his own disciples. And pride is what motivated the, the hypocrisy of the um, Pharisees. And instead of confessing that they were the fact that they were sinners, they put on a mask, right? Jesus said that you guys are hypocrites. You put on a mask. You're, you're one way on the outside and you're another way on the inside. A mask of self-righteousness, pretending to be something they were not. And, and really quickly, in verse 15, the same sin of pride is also assigned by Jesus to Herod. And we know the story with Herod. We read it a few weeks ago. Herod refused to do the right thing, would not do the right thing. And he, he, he capitulated to the demands of his evil wife because he had friends there and he didn't want to look bad in front of his friends about the thing that he had just promised. And, and he loved the praises of men and the, and, the, and the respect of men rather than doing what he knew was right. He was prideful. And pride is 11, a sin that will con- consume the whole of our brain. And pride is still the core of all religious hypocrisy. If we have religious hypocrisy in our own life, the root of it is pride. We think of ourselves in a way that we should not. And what I mean by that is, is we need to think of ourselves the way that God thinks of ourselves. Pride can also be thinking badly of yourself, right? See, pride is, the, the, the humility, true humility is not thinking of yourself at all. It's not thinking of yourself high or low. It's seeing yourself and thinking of yourself as God sees you. A sinner has been redeemed by his grace. That's where our hope is. There are so many warnings about pride in Scripture. I'll give you a few references, and I'm going to read one for you. Proverbs 8.13. Proverbs 29, 23. Proverbs 16, verse 5. And the one that I want to read to you is in the New Testament, the letter by James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, James 4, verse 6. He says this, but he gives more grace. What does that mean? More grace than your sin. God has more grace than you have sin. God has the ability to pour out more grace than we have the ability to sin. And that's an amazing thing when I think about myself because I'm, I'm a professional sinner. I mean, it's what I do naturally. I don't have to think about it sometimes. And, and yet what James is saying is, is okay. Not that God's okay with your sin. He's okay with who you are. Because in him there's more grace than the need that I, that then he has every need that I have in abundance to what I have the need for. He goes on and says, therefore he says, and this is the, this is the admonition, God resists the proud, but does what? Gives grace to the humble, to the humble, pride. And grace is something that we all want. It's something that we all need. And it's something that God came to give us through his son, Jesus Christ. And grace is what Jesus showed this blind man as we read on now in Mark's account when they begged Jesus to restore his sight. It says in verse 22 that he came to Bethsaida and they brought him a blind man, a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So they took the blind man, he, Jesus, took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, 
and put his hands on him. So two things happened there. He spit on his eyes. He put his hands on him. He asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. In other words, a portion of the man's sight had been restored, but he still couldn't distinguish exactly what what it was. Men, he said, they look like trees. Obviously, he's not seen well yet, or, or, or if you will, completely healed. Then in verse 25, it says, Then he, Jesus, put his hands on him again, on his eyes again, and made him look up. And when he... And, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then Jesus sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town, back to Bethsaida, nor tell anyone in the town. And what he was referring to is about the work that Jesus did. Now, this miracle is like, I'm going to point it out to you. It's, it's like the, previously, the previous miracle that we just read a few weeks ago that's recorded in chapter 7 when Jesus had healed the the deaf man the man who could not hear and the man who could not speak right and what i mean is is it's it's similar or it's the same in that that miracle of healing of the man who was deaf and mute and this miracle of healing the man who was blind these two miracles are not recorded in any of the other gospels are they things that jesus did yes but mark accounts them because they're relevant to the overall message that he's bringing forth at this time it's not just relevant to the healing, the act of healing, uh, a temporal act in of itself. And, I, and it's, it's just my opinion. You've heard me say it. Don't take my opinion for what it's worth. It's not worth much. Everybody's got them. But I want you to know, in my, in my, my, my reasoned out thought of this, I believe Mark has included these miracles to help illustrate what he's speaking here about the spiritual condition of the disciples and exactly what God does for those who are spiritually blind or needs to have their um, spiritual senses light um, enhanced, and, and which we all do. But these miracles help illustrate, they're here now, Mark records it now, because it helps illustrate the spiritual condition of the di- disciples where, where we just discussed how Jesus questioned their ability to be able to what? To hear and to see. And ultimately, understand the spiritual because there was darkness in both of these areas but even if there's not a connection to be made it's right to connect the miracle of healing of the deaf man and the healing of the blind man when we see these specific miracles to the messianic prophecies that are found within the old testament one of these is in the book of isaiah chapter 35 verses 4 through 6 where it speaks of the coming of the messiah and and tells exactly what the messiah would do and who he would be and these were indicators, these were, these were road signs for future generations to be looking at that would point to the Messiah by what he would do. And in Isaiah chapter 35, it says, say to those who are fearful hearted at a time, in other words, when hope needed to be brought forth, he says, be strong, don't be afraid. Behold, your God comes with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. In other words, he's coming to, to settle an account. And he will come and he will save you. Speaking of the Messiah, the, the prophecy of the Christ, the anointed one of God. He said, he said, at that time, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness. Speaking of life and streams in the desert, spiritual life. Well, things were once dead, there would be life now as a result of the Messiah. And the cool thing about this is that God, we see that God at this time through Jesus Christ made every attempt to reveal himself to his people. 
He was, as we said earlier this morning, he was picking up the phone and saying, I'm here. Hear what I have to say. Come and be with me. And the fact that Jesus, who we know Mark says and reveals to us as the saving servant of God, the fact that he came to open the ears of the deaf, heal those who were mute, and made those who were blind to see it testifies to this fact and assures us that God today will and still does make every attempt to make himself known to us and to the people that we live around. And in the account of the man who was deaf and mute, we know that Jesus led the man away from the crowd before he healed him. And in this account, if you notice this, it's kind of spoken about twice, but Jesus, he led the man away from the crowd before he healed him. And then afterwards, he told him to not speak, to not go and tell of the work that had, that had been done. And um, this town is Bethsaida, and that's important because when we read in the other Gospels, we know that in Matthew chapter 11, that Jesus had been in Bethsaida before. As a matter of fact, it says that he did many signs and wonders among them, and yet they didn't believe. And so Jesus spoke a judgment on that city. He spoke a judgment, if you will, a curse upon them for their unbelief, and, and, and said, Basically, what he's saying here is that there's no more evidence that is going to be given to you, this city, these people at this time. But we see that Christ cares for the individual. And when they brought this man to him who, who, who came to receive the help, they came to Jesus in faith, knowing that Jesus had the power to do this and the will to do this, is that Jesus took action. And the point is this, guys. Even though God will reveal himself and he'll go to supernatural measures to do so and in our lives and the lives around us of those around us that 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 even though god will reveal himself his love and his grace to each and every person we see here in this that each and every person must still choose right there's an individual choice that must take place in the process yes god i want you i want what you have for me and because he's a loving god he's never going to force his will or himself upon us. We have to invite him in. He knocks. Now, he makes, he makes himself, um, he, sometimes he knocks harder than other days, right? And if a person chooses to reject what God has for them by not putting their faith in Jesus, and by not turning away from sin and turning to him, God will allow them to do so. In that sense, he's a, he's a gentleman, but a decision to reject the will, the love, and the grace of God, it comes as a huge cost, right? We know that there's coming a day, a day of judgment where all accounts are going to be settled. And if you've not received Christ before then, it's too late. It's too late. Now, before we move on, I want to address the method. And maybe you're wondering about that, the method by which Jesus healed this man, considering that it's the only gradual or progressive healing described in any of the gospel accounts of Jesus' healing someone. And what I mean by that is when Jesus performs a miracle, it happens instantaneously. When he turned the water to wine, they drew out with ladles after Jesus had prayed over it, and it was wine. When he healed people from the dead, they weren't like mostly dead. They were fully alive. That's a movie reference, so if you got it, you're, you're in my special list. It's a good movie. Anyway, 
You know, it wasn't like Jesus was lacking the ability or the power to fully heal this blind man, right? We see the disciples struggle at one point with casting out demons, and Jesus just kind of like, guys, prayer and fasting, you know? Jesus doesn't lack the power to do it. So we have to understand and ask ourselves, why is it being done this way? And I think the common thread of what Mark's trying to communicate to us is where the answer is found. So to begin with, I want to point out that it appears that the act of spitting on the man's eye was really just a natural action. Think about it. Uh, In my studies, I've found and read that in cases of blindness, most cases of blindness, the eyelids would be often gummed together, right? You know, you get you get weeping and mucus and and I don't mean to be graphic but the the eyelids would have to first be able to open before someone be able to see even if Jesus healed them right there's a natural element that's being taken care of as Jesus spits in the eye and and cleans this man's eyelids and 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 so the spit was just a natural means to separate it the the means that that the actual miracle of the supernatural restoring of the man's sight, it appears to have come with Jesus putting his hands on the man's eyes. There's two actions that take place. And the reason why it appears to be this is because Jesus does this twice. Once, cleans the eyes, opens the eyelids, touches the man's eyes. The guy says, I see, but not like I'm not all the way. Things are still murky. And so Jesus, what does it say? It says in verse 24 that Jesus again touched the man's eyes and not that jesus could have just spoke a word and the guy would have been healed but the means of touching is relevant and so we see the process and 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 yet the the progressiveness of it um the method of progressive healing is is unusual but again connecting the dots and what are we connecting the dots to this message of spiritual blindness right this message of not understanding, not remembering, having your spiritual eyes open to spiritual truth. And so we have this earthly example, another example to help us understand something spiritual. And how do I know that? Because Jesus was always doing that. Always, every time. And Jesus probably chose this method at this time as an illustration to his disciples to show them and to show us that their spiritual blindness, our spiritual blindness, is healed gradually, is restored gradually. Our ability to be able to hear, their ability to be able to hear, their ability to be able to see and understand spiritual things is a process that we are all undergoing now. We're told to grow, what? In our knowledge and understanding of who God is and of God's will for our life. In other words, there was hope for Jesus' disciples. This is what he was letting them know. You guys, he didn't say, you guys are hopeless, right? He brought them, he trained them, he taught them, he opened their understanding. He used examples like this to encourage them. And Jesus was gradually opening up their understanding to who he is and their understanding to the things of the kingdom of God. And and this is what we, we, we go on to read now in verse 27, right? This is all preparation for what's next. And Jesus now said in verse 27 that his disciples went out of the towns there from, from, from Bethsaida. They went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, the region of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I, who do men say that I am? And so they answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he said to them again, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. So when Jesus left Bethsaida, 
says, went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. That's geographically speaking for those who are interested. It's 25 miles north of Bethsaida. Bethsaida is on the shores of the Sea of Galilee in that area. So they, they make their way back over to the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and it's very, it's further up north. It's the foot of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is the place where the Jordan River begins. It's the headwaters of the Jordan River. And as they were traveling, Jesus asked his disciples, um, a question that he had asked them before. It's very similar. It may be familiar to you. It's back in Mark chapter 6 where Jesus had asked them, who do people say that I am? And they answered again with the same things that they had, had said before, John the Baptist, Elijah, the prophets. But, you know, we all know and they knew that these responses were wrong. But Jesus goes on at this particular time in a very special way now and asks them the more important question, a direct question in a very personal way. But who do you who do you say that I am? And Peter, really acting as a spokesman for the whole, declares this, you are the Christ. It literally means the anointed one, the chosen one of Christ. And Peter was taking all of his good Jewish knowledge, his Hebrew knowledge of Old Testament, everything that he had been taught growing up about the Messiah, the one they had been looking for, he, and, and what all the rabbis had been teaching him, things he had learned in synagogue growing up, he, he, and he says, you're him. You're the Christ. You're the one who's been foretold of. And you, we might be thinking that this confession of Jesus being the Christ, we might be thinking, well, this is really no different than the previous confessions that the disciples as a whole have made, and it's in a lot of ways it's not. Um, they have made this, this, this declaration previously, both corporately and individually. Up to this point, if you remember, it wasn't too long ago that after Peter had walked on the water and Jesus had brought him into the boat and calmed the storm that was raging and made the waves to cease and the wind to stop, that they were in the boat and they says that they were astonished. And they, they, they realized that Jesus was no mere man. And what they said, what they declared at this time, truly, truly they said, you are the Son of God. They stood in awe of the things that Jesus just did. However, this time Peter's confession seems to be different in that they're on a journey. They're on a way. They've left things behind. They're just walking about. And, 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 and Jesus asks this question where there's no immediate miracle that precedes this confession. And so this confession appears to be different because it's a thought-out decision based upon their entire experience with Jesus up to this point. And Jesus asked this question at this time in this way, I think, for two reasons. The first is, is that Jesus was calling his disciples to make a decision based upon the overall evidences that they'd received and, and were witnesses to at this time. Remember, he's, again, opening up their spiritual senses, their eyes and their ears to who he is and what he had come to do. Who do you say that I am? Look at the evidence. Consider all the proofs. In other words, what Jesus was asking them to do was come to a logical conclusion. That's key. He was asking them to come to a logical conclusion and not purely an emotional decision as to who they thought he was. And I'm here to tell you this morning, that was important then, and it is so important today because a saving faith, the type of faith that we want to have, a saving faith in Jesus which ultimately re re requires us to rely upon him, to cling to Jesus, to trust in him, following him, even when things are not going the way we want or expect, it will only last, that kind of faith only lasts when it's built on truth. 
right? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, faith, this kind of faith, true biblical faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidences of things that we cannot see. Now, the second reason for why Jesus had asked this question at this time and in this way, leading them to make this thought out decision about who he was is because things were about to go in a way that they did not want or they did not expect. The disciples and Jesus was about to let them know about some of these things because the time had come for him and his disciples Think about the timeline of events now. The time had come for them together to make the final journey to Jerusalem where Jesus would fulfill his messianic mission. And so in verse 31, it says, and he began to teach them at this point with that confession at this time in in Jesus's ministry and at this time of opening up their understanding to spiritual truth. And he said he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke these words openly, but then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Now, when it comes down to it, it doesn't really, honestly, it really doesn't matter what everyone else says about Jesus in regards to who he is. What really matters is is what do you say? What do you say? Who do you say Jesus is? And if we, like the disciples, come to believe personally and confess that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the anointed son of God, the Messiah, then then an equally important question must be asked and answered. What kind of Messiah is he? What kind of Messiah is he? And, and, And the Bible tells us to be very careful that we don't create or a god in our own image and that holds true to messiah we can put expectations on him and think that he should be this way or do these things and jesus goes that's not at all who i am or what i'm about i see that throughout christianity today in many different ways and the disciples were no different than that not, not just who Jesus is, but what kind of Messiah is he? And for the disciples and the Jews at this time, right, they believed in and looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah who would come in power and in might and defeat the Roman oppressors, their enemies. A Messiah who would be a political and national superman. You are the Christ. You're this guy. That's what Peter was saying. He had part of the truth, some spiritual truth, but yet he still lacked understanding. And this is not who Jesus had begun to reveal himself to be. And so when Jesus announced the fact that he was going to suffer, be rejected, and ultimately be killed, to rise again three days, think about it. That's a hard thing for the disciples to hear. Jesus is going, yes, I'm him, but I'm not who you think he is. You misunderstand some things, guys. And he's given them clarity. He's given them spiritual understanding. He's leading them into the truth. You see, Peter loved Jesus, right? We know that. He loved Jesus. He was zealous for Jesus. And he did not want these things to happen to someone whom he loved. But Peter was also expecting his Messiah to be something other than what Jesus had just revealed himself to be. So Peter speaks up again. And and Peter had done well when he spoke the first time and confessed Jesus to be the Christ. But this time he, he didn't said the wrong things. And of course, Jesus rebuked him. 
and explained that it was the will of God for these things to happen and how Peter, by not being submitted to these things, was aligning himself or at least acting like Satan, being like Satan. Who Satan, what does he mean? Satan's not mindful of the will of God. But notice also in verse 33, because we're getting ready to wrap it up, it tells us that Jesus, prior to speaking these words of rebuke to Peter, he turned around and looked at the disciples. And why would he do that? And it's due to the fact that they all were thinking what Peter said. They all felt the same way. In fact, Scripture tells us, if you think about it, when we think about just spiritual understanding and them coming, being enlightened to the truth, not only of of who Jesus is, but what type of Messiah he was and what he'd come to do. We know that only it was only after it was only after Jesus had been crucified and raised up from the grave that they began to fully understand what kind of Messiah Jesus is. Now, the idea of Jesus being a Christ who would suffer and die, as I said kind of earlier, it presented this problem and it was a theological problem. They had been raised with certain thoughts and certain teachings. It was a problem for them. It didn't, what Jesus was saying didn't line up with the expectations that they had come to based upon the knowledge that they'd received. There was a theological problem in this for them. But this revelation had also created a personal problem. And I think this is where it really gets real for us. It got real for them. Think about it. It created a personal problem for them because Jesus had asked them when he called them, he said what? Come, follow me. And they knew what whatever happened to him would happen to them. And with the idea of Jesus as this kind of Messiah, the one sent by God, with their understanding, it meant that it led down the road to a kingdom upon this earth where they would rule and reign by his side with fame and, and authority and, and maybe even um, affluence. You know, we don't know the details of that, but they were, they were seeing this glory. They were envisioning this glorious moment where they would rule and reign by Christ's side here upon this earth at that time. We know there's a future time coming for that. But, but, but that's, that's the come follow me. Sure, I'll come. I want some of that. You're going to be raised up into a power and authority and we're going to share in it. And all people are going to be submitted and surrendered to you. You're the mighty conqueror. However, if there was suffering, if there was a cross in his future, in Jesus' future, that meant that come follow me, that it would be one in their future as well. And that would be enough reason to disagree with him. That's not what I signed up for. And we know that Judas ultimately chose that other road. In spite of their devotion to him, in spite of their devotion to him, they, 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 they were not wanting it. They, they were fighting against it. And so Jesus went on to explain the cost of discipleship again. Okay, guys, this is the road we're going on, but understand what this means. And we don't have time to read through this, so if Debbie wants to come up in the worship team, verses 34 on through 38, I'll end with this. In these verses, Jesus lays out the cost the cost and the, or excuse me, the conditions for true discipleship, where Jesus says, come follow me. Because not only is it important for us to say who Jesus is, and not only is it important for us to understand what kind of Messiah he is, we need to understand what it means when he calls us to come follow him, what road that is we're being asked and have been asked to travel down. And Jesus was making that truth known to his disciples. And what he's saying in these verses 
I'll summarize it with these three conditions for true discipleship. Number one, we must surrender ourselves completely to him. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me, right? There's no lukewarmness in our relationship and our love for Christ. We cannot be in the world and of the world. We're either for him or against him. And a true disciple needs to surrender themselves completely to him. Jesus said this. Number one, number two, we must identify with him in suffering and in death. And number three, we must follow him obediently wherever he leads us, wherever he leads us. And I pray that God would open up our spiritual understanding both our eyes to see and our ears to hear as we are in this process of God revealing um, who he is to us and his will for our lives, but ultimately what waits for us and the promises that have been spoken to us as we become the children of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you minister to us, that, Lord, you're faithful to begin the work you're faithful to finish the work that you've begun in us. And that's ultimately the, the short of it when it comes to what you're doing with his, your disciples at this moment that we're reading about. You're showing them, God, what the truth is. You're revealing, Lord, to them um, the hope and the future that they have in you. And, Lord, you ask them to count the cost in their decision to follow after you. And Lord, every day when you make truth known to us, you ask us to count the cost that's related to that truth and to say yes and submit to your will. Lord, I pray, God, that we would do that again today. Lord, that we wouldn't hold back. We ask, God, as you open up our understanding that we would continue to grow in our faith, in our relationship with you. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. We ask, amen.